A Treatise on the Religious Affections, a book by Jonathan Edwards. It is with professors of religion, especially such as become so in time of an outpouring of the Spirit of God, as it is with blossoms in the spring. There are vast numbers of blossoms upon the trees, which all look fair and promising, but yet very many of them never come to anything. John Flavel writes, A time of outpouring of the Spirit of God, reviving religion and producing the pleasant appearances of it in new converts, is in Scripture compared to this very thing, the spring season, when the benign influences of the heavens cause the blossoms to put forth. Canticles 2, 11 and 12. Many in a little time wither, drop off, and rot under the trees. Indeed, for a while they look as beautiful and gay as others, and not only so, but smell sweet and send forth a pleasant odor, so that we cannot certainly distinguish those blossoms which have in them that secret virtue, which will afterwards appear in the fruit. We cannot tell which of them have that inward solidity and strength which shall enable them to bear and cause them to be perfected by the hot summer sun that will dry up the others. It is a mature fruit which comes afterwards and not the beautiful colors and smell of the blossom that we must judge by. So new converts, professedly so, in their talk about religious things, may appear fair and be very savory, and the saints may think they talk feelingly. They may relish their talk, and imagine they perceive a divine savor in it, and yet all may come to nothing. It is strange how hardly men are brought to be contented with the rules and directions Christ has given them, but they must needs go by other rules of their own inventing that seem to them wiser and better. I know of no directions or counsels which Christ ever delivered more plainly than the rules he has given to guide us in our judging of other sincerity, that we should judge of the tree chiefly by the fruit. Yet this, it seems, will not do. But other ways are found out which are imagined to be more distinguishing and certain. And woeful have been the mischievous consequences of this arrogant setting up of men's wisdom above the wisdom of Christ. I believe many saints have gone much out of the way of Christ's word in this respect, and some of them have been chastised with whips, and I had almost said scorpions, to bring them back again. But many things which have lately appeared and do now appear may convince us that ordinarily those who have gone furthest this way, that have been most highly conceited of their faculty of discerning, and have appeared most forward, peremptorily and suddenly, to determine the state of men's souls, have been hypocrites who have known nothing of true religion. In the parable of the wheat and tares, it is said, Matthew thirteen twenty six, when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also, as all the tares were not discerned nor distinguishable from the wheat until then, as Mr. Flavel observes, who mentions it as an observation of Jerome's that wheat and tares are so much alive until the blade of the wheat comes to bring forth the ear that it is next to impossible to distinguish them. And then Mr. Flavel adds, How difficult soever it be to discern the difference between wheat and tares, yet doubtless the eye of sense can much easier discriminate them than the most quick and piercing eye of man can discern the difference between special and common grace. 
For all saving graces in the saints have their counterfeits and hypocrites. There are similar works in those which a spiritual and very judicious eye may easily mistake for the saving and genuine effects of a sanctifying spirit." And it is the year or the fruit which distinguishes the wheat from the tares, so this is a true shibboleth, that he who stands as judge at the passages of Jordan makes use of to distinguish those that shall pass over Jordan into the true Canaan from those that should be slain at the passages. For the Hebrew word shibboleth signifies an ear of corn, and perhaps a more full pronunciation of Jephthah's friends, shibboleth, may represent a full ear with fruit in it, typifying the fruits of the friends of Christ, the antitype of Jephthah, and the more lean pronunciations of the Ephraimites, his enemies, may represent their empty ears, typifying the show of religion and hypocrites without substance and fruit. This is agreeable to the doctrine we are abundantly taught in Scripture, that he who is set to judge those that pass through death, whether they have a right to enter into the heavenly Canaan or no, or whether they should not be slain, will judge every man according to his works. We seem to be taught the same things by the rules given for the priest's discerning of the leprosy. In many cases, it was impossible for the priest to determine whether a man had the leprosy or whether he were clean by the most narrow inspection of the appearances upon him until he had waited to see what the appearances would come to and had shut up the person who showed himself one seven days after another, and when he judged, he was to determine by the hair which grew out of the spot that was showed him, which was, as it were, the fruit that it brought forth. And here, before I finish what I have to say under this head, I would say something to a strange notion some have of late been led away with, of certainly knowing the good estate that others are in, as though it were immediately revealed to them from heaven, by their love flowing out to them in an extraordinary manner. They argue thus, that their love, being very sensible and great, may be certainly known by them who feel it to be a true Christian love, and if it be a true Christian love, the Spirit of God must be the author of it. And inasmuch as the Spirit of God, who knows certainly whether others are the children of God or no, and is the Spirit of truth, is pleased by an uncommon influence upon them, to cause her love to flow out, and in an extraordinary manner, toward such a person as a child of God. It must needs be that this infallible spirit who deceives none, knows that that person is a child of God. But such persons might be convinced of the falseness of their reasoning, if they would consider whether or no it be not their duty, and what God expressly requires of them, to love those as the children of God, who they think are the children of God, and of whom they have no reason to think otherwise, from all that they can see in them, though God who searches the hearts knows them not to be his children. If it be their duty, then it is good, and the lack of its sin and therefore the Spirit of God may be the author of it. Surely the Spirit of God, without being a spirit of falsehood, may in such a case assist a person to do his duty and keep him from sin. But then they argue from the uncommon degree and special manner in which their love flows out to the person, which they think the Spirit of God never would cause if he did not know the object to be a child of God.
But then I would ask them whether or no it is not their duty to love all, such as are bound to think are the children of God from all that they can see in them, to a very great degree, though God from other things which he sees knows them not to be so. It is men's duty to love all whom they are bound in charity to look upon as the children of God with a vastly dearer affection than they commonly do. As we ought to love Christ to the utmost capacity of our nature, so it is our duty to love those who we think are so near and dear to him as his members. With an exceeding dear affection is Christ has loved us, and therefore it is sin in us not to love them so. We ought to pray to God that he would by his Spirit keep us from sin and enable us to do our duty. And may not his Spirit answer our prayers and enable us to do our duty in a particular instance without lying? If he cannot, then the Spirit of God is bound not to help his people to do their duty in some instances, because he cannot do it without being a spirit of falsehood. But surely God is so far a sovereign that he may enable us to do our duty when he pleases, and on what occasion he pleases. When persons think others are his children, God may have other ends in causing their exceedingly endeared love to flow out to them, besides revealing to them whether their opinion of them be right or no. May he not have that merciful end in it, to enable them to do their duty, and to keep them from that dreadful, infinite, evil sin? And will they cause God shall not show them that mercy in such a case? If I am at a distance from home, and hear that in my absence my house is burnt, but my family have in some extraordinary manner all escaped the flames, and everything in the circumstances of the so story as I hear it makes it appear very credible, would it not be sin in me in such a case not to feel a very great degree of gratitude to God, though the story in fact be not true? And is not God so sovereign that he may, if he please on that occasion, enable me to do my duty in a much further degree? than I used to do it, and yet not incur the charge of deceitfulness in confirming a falsehood. It is exceeding manifest that a mistake may be the occasion of gracious exercise and consequently a gracious influence of the Spirit of God by Romans 14.6. He that eateth to the Lord, he eateth and giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. The apostle is speaking to those who, through erroneous and needless scruples, avoided eating legally unclean meats. But this it is very evident that there may be true exercises of grace, a true respect to the Lord, and particularly a true thankfulness which may be occasioned by an erroneous judgment in practice. And consequently, an error may be the occasion of those truly holy exercises that are from the infallible Spirit of God. And if so, it is certainly too much for us to determine to how great a degree the Spirit of God may give this holy exercise on such an occasion. This notion of certainly discerning another state by love flowing out is not only not founded on reason or scripture, but it is anti-scriptural, against the rules of scripture, which, without saying a word of any such way of judging the state of others as this, direct us to judge chiefly by the fruits that are seen in them. The doctrine of Scripture plainly teaches us that the state of others towards God cannot be known by us, as in Revelations 2.17. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, 
And I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving him that receiveth it. In Romans 2.29 He is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. By this last expression, whose praise is not of men but of God, the apostle has respect to the insufficiency of men to judge concerning him, whether he be inwardly a Jew or no. They could easily see by outward marks whether men were outwardly Jews, but it belongs to God alone to give a determining voice respecting their inward state. This is confirmed by the same apostle's use of the phrase in 1 Corinthians 4-5, Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. The apostle in the two foregoing verses says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. It is further confirmed because the apostle in the second chapter to the Romans directs his speech, especially to those who had a high conceit of their own holiness, made their boast of God, were confident of their own power of discerning that they knew God's will and approved the things which were excellent, or tried the things that may differ, as in the margin, verse 18. They were confident that they were guides of the blind, and a light to them which are in darkness, instructors of the foolish, teachers of babes, and so took upon them to judge others. And how arrogant must their notion be, who imagine that they can certainly know others' godliness, when that great apostle Peter pretends not to say any more concerning Silvanus, than that he was a faithful brother as he supposed, First Peter 5.12. Though this Silvanus appears to have been a very eminent minister of Christ and evangelist, a famous light in God's church at that day, and an intimate companion of the apostles, see Second Corinthians one nineteen, First Thessalonians one one, and Second Thessalonians one one. A Treatise on the Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards, Part 3, Showing What Are Distinguishing Signs of Truly Gracious and Holy Affections. Introductory Remarks I come now to take notice of some things wherein those affections that are spiritual and gracious differ from those that are not so. But before I proceed directly to the distinguishing characters, I would previously mention something which I desire may be observed concerning the marks I shall lay down. Number one, I am far from undertaking to give such signs of gracious affections as shall be sufficient to enable any, certainly, to distinguish true affections from false in others or to determine positively which of their neighbors are true professors and which are hypocrites. In so doing, I should be guilty of that arrogance which I have been condemning. It is plain that Christ has given rules to all Christians to enable them to judge of those professors of religion with whom they are concerned, so far as is necessary for their own safety, and to prevent their being led into a snare by false teachers and false pretenders to religion. It is also beyond doubt that the scriptures abound with rules, 
which may be very serviceable to ministers in counseling and conducting souls committed to their care and things appertaining to their spiritual and eternal state. Yet it is also evident that it was never God's design to give us any rules by which we may certainly know who of our fellow professors are His, and to make a full and clear separation between sheep and goats. On the contrary, it was God's design to reserve this to Himself as His prerogative, and therefore no such distinguishing signs as shall enable Christians or ministers to do this are ever to be expected to the world's end. For no more is ever to be expected from any signs found in the Word of God or gathered from it than Christ designed them for. Number two, no such signs are to be expected that shall be sufficient to enable those saints certainly to discern their own good estate, who are very low in grace, or are such as have departed much from God and are fallen into a dead, carnal, and unchristian frame. It is not agreeable to God's design, as already observed, that such should know their good estate, nor is it desirable that they should. But on the contrary, it is every way best that they should not. We have reason to bless God that He has made no provision that such should certainly know the state they are in any other way than by first coming out of their ill frame and way. Indeed, it is not properly through the defect of the signs given in the Word of God that every saint living, whether strong or weak, and those who are in a bad frame as others, cannot certainly know their good estate by them. For the rules in themselves are certain and infallible, and every saint has or has had those things in himself which are sure evidences of grace. For every, even the least, act of grace is so. But the difficulty comes through his defect to whom the signs are given. There is a twofold defect in that saint who is very low in grace or in an ill frame, which makes it impossible for him to know certainly that he has true grace by the best signs and rules which can be given him. First, a defect in the object or the qualification to be viewed and examined. I don't mean an essential defect, because I suppose a person to be a real saint, but a defect in degree, grace being very small, cannot be clearly and certainly discerned and distinguished. Things that are very small we cannot clearly discern as to their form or distinguish them one from another. Though as they are in themselves, their form may be very different. There is doubtless a great difference between the body of man and the bodies of other animals, and the first conception in the womb. But yet if we should view the different embryos, it might not be possible for us to discern the difference by reason of the imperfect state of the object. But, as it comes to greater perfection, the difference becomes very plain. The difference between creatures of very contrary qualities is not so plainly to be seen while they are very young, even after they are actually brought forth is in their more perfect state. The difference between doves and ravens, or doves and vultures, when they first come out of the egg, is not so evident. But as they grow to their perfection, it is exceeding great and manifest. The grace of those I am speaking of is mingled with so much corruption, which clouds and hides it, as makes it impossible to be known with certainty. 
though different things before us may have in themselves many marks thoroughly distinguishing them one from another, yet if we see them only in a thick smoke, it may nevertheless be impossible to distinguish them. A fixed star is easily distinguishable from a comet in a clear sky, but if we view them through a cloud, it may be impossible to see the difference. When true Christians are in an ill frame, guilt lies on the conscience, which will bring fear, and so prevent the peace and joy of an assured hope. Secondly, there is in such a case a defect in the eye. As the feebleness of grace and the prevalence of corruption obscures the object, so it enfeebles the sight. Corruption in the soul darkens the sight as to all spiritual objects of which grace is one. Sin is like some distempers of the eyes that make things to appear of different colors from those which properly belong to them, or like other distempers that put the mouth out of taste, so as to disable it from distinguishing good and wholesome food from bad. But everything tastes bitter. Men in a corrupt and carnal frame have their spiritual senses in but a poor plight for judging and distinguishing spiritual things. For these reasons, no signs that can be given will actually satisfy persons in such a case. Let the signs given be never so good and infallible and clearly laid down, they will not serve them. It is like giving a man rules how to distinguish visible objects in the dark. The things themselves may be very different, and their difference may be very well and distinctly described to him, yet all is insufficient to enable him to distinguish them because he is in the dark. And therefore, many persons in such a case spend time in a fruitless labor in pouring on past experiences and examining themselves by signs which they hear laid down from the pulpit or read in books. There is other work for them to do, which, while they neglect, all their self-examinations are like to be in vain, if they should spend ever so much time in them. The accursed thing is to be destroyed from their camp, and aching to be slain, and until this be done they will be in trouble. It is not God's design that men should obtain assurance in any other way than by mortifying corruption, increasing in grace, and obtaining the lively exercises of it. And although self-examination be a duty of great use and importance, and by no means to be neglected, yet it is not the principal means by which the saints do get satisfaction of their good estate. Assurance is not to be obtained so much by self-examination as by action. The Apostle Paul sought assurance chiefly this way, even by forgetting the things that were behind and reaching forth unto those things that were before, pressing towards a mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, if by any means he might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And it was by this means chiefly that he obtained assurance. 1 Corinthians 9.26 I therefore so run not as uncertainly. He obtained assurance of winning the prize more by running than by considering. The swiftness of his pace did more towards his assurance of a conquest than the strictness of his examination. Giving all diligence to grow in grace by adding to faith, virtue, and so on, is the direction that the Apostle Peter gives us for making our calling and election sure and having an entrance ministered to us abundantly into Christ's everlasting kingdom. Without this, our eyes will be dim and we shall be as men in the dark. We cannot plainly see either the forgiveness of our sins past or our heavenly inheritance that is future and far off. Second Peter 1, 5-11 
Solomon Stoddard writes, The way to know your godliness is to renew the visible exercises of grace. The more visible exercises of grace are renewed, the more certain you will be. The more frequently these actings are renewed, the more abiding and confirmed your assurance will be. The more men's grace is multiplied, the more their peace is multiplied. 2 Peter 1, 2 Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, though good rules to distinguish true grace from counterfeit may tend to convince hypocrites and be of great use to the saints in many respects, and among other benefits they may be very useful to them in order to remove many needless scruples and establish their hope. Yet I am far from pretending to lay down any such rules as shall be sufficient of themselves, without other means, to enable all true saints to see their good estate, or from supposing that they should be the principal means of their satisfaction. Number, number three. Nor is there much encouragement from the experience of present or past times to lay down rules or marks to distinguish between true and false affections, in hopes of convincing any considerable number of that sort of hypocrites who have been deceived with great false discoveries and affections, and are once settled into false confidence. Such hypocrites are so conceited of their own wisdom, so blinded and hardened with self-righteousness, but very subtle and secret under the disguise of great humility, and so invincible a fondness of their pleasing conceit, their great exaltation, that it usually signifies nothing at all to lay before them the most convincing evidences of their hypocrisy. Their state is indeed deplorable, and next to those that have committed the unpardonable sin. Some of this sort seem to be most out of the reach of means of conviction and repentance. But yet the laying down of good rules may be a means of convincing other kinds of hypocrites. And God is able to convince even this kind, and His grace is not to be limited, nor means to be neglected. Besides, such rules may be of use to the true saints in order to detect false affections, which they have mingled with true, and be a means of their religion becoming more pure and like gold tried in the fire. Having premised these things, I now proceed directly to take notice of those things in which true religious affections are distinguished from false. Section 1. Affections that are truly spiritual and gracious arise from those influences and operations on the heart which are spiritual, supernatural, and divine. I will explain what I mean by these terms, whence will appear their use to distinguish between those affections which are spiritual and those which are not so. We find the true saints, or those persons who are sanctified by the Spirit of God, are in the New Testament called spiritual persons. And their being spiritual is spoken of as their peculiar character, and that wherein they are distinguished from those who are not sanctified. This is evident because those who are spiritual are set in opposition to natural men and carnal men. Thus the spiritual man and the natural man are set in opposition one to another, 1 Corinthians 2:14 and 15. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. The scripture explains itself to mean an ungodly man or one that has no grace by a natural man, 
Thus the apostle Jude, speaking of certain ungodly men that had crept in unawares among the saints, verse 4 of his epistle, says, verse 19, These are sensual, having not the Spirit. This the apostle gives as a reason why they behaved themselves in such a wicked manner as he had described. Here the word translated sensual is the very same which in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15 is translated natural. In like manner, in the continuation of the same discourse, spiritual men are opposed to carnal men, which the connection plainly shows means the same as spiritual men and natural men in the foregoing verses. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, i.e., as in a great measure unsanctified. Now, therefore, if by natural and carnal in these texts be intended unsanctified, then doubtless by spiritual, which is opposed thereto, is meant sanctified and gracious. And as the saints are called spiritual in Scripture, so we also find that there are certain properties, qualities, and principles that have the same epithet given them. So we read of a spiritual mind, Romans 8, 6, and 7, a spiritual wisdom, Colossians 1, 9, and a spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, 3. Now it may be observed that the epithet spiritual in these and other parallel texts of the New Testament is not used to signify any relation of persons or things to the spirit or soul of man as a spiritual part of man in opposition to the body or material part. Qualities are not said to be spiritual because they have their seed in the soul and not in the body. For there are some properties that the scripture calls carnal or fleshly, which have their seed as much in the soul as those properties that are called spiritual. Thus pride and self-righteousness and a man's trusting to his own wisdom the apostle calls fleshly, Colossians 2.18. Nor are things called spiritual because they are conversant about those things that are immaterial and not corporal. For so was the wisdom of the wise men and princes of this world conversant about spirits and immaterial beings. Yet the apostle speaks of them as natural men, totally ignorant of those things that are spiritual, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But it is with relation to the Holy Ghost or Spirit of God that persons or things are termed spiritual in the New Testament. Spirit, as the word is used to signify the third person in the Trinity, is a substantive, of which is formed the adjective spiritual in the Holy Scriptures. Thus Christians are called spiritual persons because they are born of the Spirit, and because of the indwelling and holy influences of the Spirit of God in them. And things are called spiritual as related to the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. What things also we speak not in the words man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Here the apostle himself expressly signifies that by spiritual things he means the things of the Spirit of God and things which the Holy Ghost teacheth. The same is yet more abundantly apparent by viewing the whole context. Again, Romans 8, 6, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The Apostle explains what he means by being carnally and spiritually minded in what follows in the ninth verse, and shows that by being spiritually minded he means having the indwelling and holy influences of the Spirit of God in the heart. 
But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The same is evident by all the context. But time would fail to produce all the evidence of this in the New Testament. And it must be here observed that although it is with relation to the Spirit of God and His influences that persons and things are called spiritual, yet not all those persons who are subject to any kind of influence of the Spirit of God are ordinarily called so in the New Testament. They who have only the common influences of God's Spirit are not so called in the places cited above. It has been already proved that by spiritual men is meant godly men in opposition to natural, carnal, and unsanctified men. And it is most plain that the apostle by spiritually minded, Romans 8.6, means graciously minded. And though the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit which natural men might have are sometimes called spiritual because they are from the Spirit... Yet natural men, whatever gifts of the Spirit they had, were not, in the usual language of the New Testament, called spiritual persons. For it was not by men's having the gifts, but the virtues of the Spirit, that they are called spiritual, as is apparent by Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Meekness is one of those virtues which the Apostle had just spoken of in the verses next preceding, showing what are the fruits of the Spirit. Those qualifications, therefore, are said to be spiritual in the language of the New Testament, which are truly gracious and peculiar to the saints. Thus, when we read a spiritual wisdom and understanding, as in Colossians 1.9, we desire that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Hereby is intended that wisdom which is gracious, and from the sanctifying influences of the Spirit of God. For doubtless by spiritual wisdom is meant that which is opposite to what the Scripture calls natural wisdom, as a spiritual man is opposed to the natural man. And therefore spiritual wisdom is doubtless the same with that wisdom which is from above, James 3.17. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and so on. For this the apostle opposes to natural wisdom, verse 15. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual. The last word in the original is the same that is translated natural in 1 Corinthians 2.14. So that, although natural men may be the subjects of many influences of the Spirit of God, as is evident by many scriptures, yet they are not, in a sense, the scripture, spiritual persons. Neither are any of those effects, common gifts, qualities, or affections that are from the influence of the Spirit of God upon them called spiritual things. The great difference lies in these two things. Number one, the Spirit of God is given to the true saints to dwell in them as His proper lasting abode and to influence their hearts as a principle of new nature or as a divine supernatural spring of life and action. The scriptures represent the Holy Spirit not only as moving and occasionally influencing the saints, but as dwelling in them as his temple, his proper abode and everlasting dwelling place, 1 Corinthians 3.16, 2 Corinthians 6.16, John 14.16 and 17. 
and he is represented as being there so united to the faculties of the soul that he becomes there a principle or spring of a new nature in life. So the saints are said to live by Christ, living in them. Galatians 2.20 Christ by his spirit not only is in them, but lives in them. They live by his life. His spirit is united to them as a principle of life in them. They not only drink living water, but this living water becomes a well or fountain of water in the soul, springing up into spiritual and everlasting life, John 4.14, and thus becomes a principle of life in them. This living water, the evangelist himself explains to intend the Spirit of God, chapter 7, 38 and 39. The light of the Son of Righteousness does not only shine upon them, but is so communicated to them that they shine also and become little images of that sun which shines upon them. The sap of the true vine is not only conveyed to them, as the sap of a tree may be conveyed into a vessel, but is conveyed as sap is from a tree into one of its living branches, where it becomes a principle of life. The Spirit of God being thus communicated and united to the saints, they are from thence properly denominated from it, and are called spiritual. On the other hand, though the Spirit of God may many ways influence natural men, yet because it is not thus communicated to them as an indwelling principle, they do not derive any denomination or character from it. For there being no union, it is not their own. The light may shine upon a body that is very dark or black, and though that body be the subject of the light, yet because the light becomes no principle of light to it, so as to cause the body to shine, hence that body does not properly receive its denomination from it, so as to be called a lightsome body. So the Spirit of God, acting upon the soul only, without communicating itself to be an active principle in it, cannot denominate it spiritual. A body that continues black may be said not to have light, though the light shines upon it. So natural men are said not to have the Spirit, Jude 19. Sensual or natural as the word is elsewhere rendered, having not the Spirit. Number two, another reason why the saints and their virtues are called spiritual, and which is a principal thing, is that the Spirit of God, dwelling as a vital principle in their souls, produces there those effects wherein he exerts and communicates himself in his own proper nature. Holiness is the nature of the Spirit of God, therefore he is called in Scripture the Holy Ghost. Holiness, which is, as it were, the beauty and sweetness of the divine nature, is as much the proper nature of the Holy Spirit as heat is the nature of fire, or sweetness was the nature of that holy anointing oil, which was the principal type of the Holy Ghost in the Mosaic dispensation. The Spirit of God so dwells in the hearts of the saints that he there, as a seed or spring of life, exerts and communicates himself, and this is sweet and divine nature. He makes the soul a partaker of God's beauty and Christ's joy, so that the saint has truly fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, and thus having the communion or participation of the Holy Ghost. 
The grace which is in the hearts of the saints is of the same nature with the divine holiness, though infinitely less in degree, as the brightness in a diamond which the sun shines upon is of the same nature with the brightness of the sun, but only that it is as nothing to it in degree. Therefore Christ says, John 3, 6, That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, i.e., the grace that is begotten in the hearts of the saints is something of the same nature with that spirit, and so is properly called a spiritual nature, after the same manner as that which is born of the flesh is flesh, or that which is born of corrupt nature is corrupt nature. But the Spirit of God never influences the minds of natural men after this manner. Though he may influence them in many ways, yet he never in any of his influences communicates himself to them in his own proper nature. Indeed, he never acts disagreeably to his nature, either on the minds of saints or sinners. But the Spirit of God may act upon men agreeably to his own nature, and not exert his proper nature in the acts and exercises of their minds. The Spirit of God may act so that his actions may be agreeable to his nature, and yet may not at all communicate himself in his proper nature in the effect of that action. Thus, for instance, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and there was nothing disagreeable to his nature in that action, but yet he did not at all communicate himself in that action. There was nothing of the proper nature of the Holy Spirit in that motion of the waters. And so he may act upon the minds of men many ways, and not communicate himself any more than when he acts on inanimate things. Thus, not only the manner of the Spirit's relation to the subject of his operation is different, but the influence and operation itself, and the effect wrought, exceeding different. So that not only the persons are called spiritual as having the Spirit of God dwelling in them, but those qualifications, affections, and experiences that are wrought in them by the Spirit are also spiritual. Therein they differ vastly in their nature and kind from all that a natural man can be the subject of while he remains in a natural state, and also from all that of which men or devils can be the authors. It is a spiritual work in this high sense, and therefore, above all other works, is peculiar to the Spirit of God. There is no work so high and excellent, for there is no work wherein God does so much communicate himself, and wherein the mere creature hath, in so high a sense, a participation of God, so that it is expressed in Scripture by the saints being made partakers of the divine nature, Second Peter 1.4 and having God dwelling in them, and they in God, First John four twelve fifteen and 16, and chapter 3, 21, and having Christ in them, John seventeen twenty one Romans 8, 10, be in the temples of the living God, Second Corinthians six sixteen living by Christ's life, Galatians 2, 20, being made partakers of God's holiness, Hebrews 12, 10, having Christ's love dwelling in them, John, 17.26, having his joy fulfilled in them, John 17.13, seeing light in God's light, and being made to drink of the river of God's pleasures, Psalm 36.89, having fellowship with God, or communicating and partaking with them, as the word signifies, First John 1.3, not that the saints are made partakers of the essence of God, or Godded with God, and Christed with Christ, according to the blasphemous language of some heretics.
But to use a scripture phrase, they are made partakers of God's fullness, Ephesians 3.17-19, John 1.16, that is, of God's spiritual beauty and happiness according to the measure and capacity of a creature. So the word fullness signifies in scripture language, grace in the hearts of the saints being therefore the most glorious work of God wherein he communicates of the goodness of his nature, it is doubtless his peculiar work, and in an imminent manner above the power of all creatures. And this is what I mean by those influences that are divine when I say that truly gracious affections arise from those influences that are spiritual and divine. From these things it is evident that those gracious influences of the saints and the effects of God's Spirit which they experience are entirely above nature and altogether of a different kind from anything that men find in themselves by the exercise of natural principles. No improvement of those principles that are natural, no advancing or exalting of them to higher degrees, and no kind of composition will ever bring men to them, because they not only differ from what is natural, and from everything that natural men experience in degree and circumstances, but also in kind, and are of a nature vastly more excellent. And this is what I mean by supernatural when I say that gracious affections are from those influences that are supernatural. From hence it follows that in those gracious exercises and affections which are wrought in the saints through the saving influences of the Spirit of God, there is a new inward perception or sensation of their minds entirely different in its nature and kind from anything that ever their minds were the subjects of before they were sanctified. For if God by his mighty power produces something that is new, not only in degree and circumstances, but in its whole nature, all that which could be produced by no exalting, varying, or compounding of what there was before, or by adding anything of the like kind, then doubtless something entirely new is felt or perceived. All spiritual and gracious affections are attended with and arise from some apprehension, idea, or sensation of mind which is in its whole nature different, yea, exceeding different, from all that is or can be in the mind of a natural man. The natural man discerns nothing of it, 1 Corinthians 2.14, any more than a man without the sense of tasting can conceive of the sweet taste of honey, or a man without the sense of hearing can conceive of the melody of a tune, or a man born blind can have a notion of the beauty of the rainbow. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-1-1-1.
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.